Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast, the official podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. This is episode 56.5, a chat with Gene Brignola, typical pylons, and we'll tell you what that means in just a moment. Sitting in with me as always, Mr. JT Kuzier from Ohio. How are you doing tonight, JT? Good evening. Good day, everybody. Uh, I'm excited about this one. This is going to be this a good is, one. This is going to, yeah, a lot of people are going to be excited about this. I, I I couldn't wait to talk to Gene, so this is going to be great. Uh, How coming in from Tampa, wearing a very appropriate shirt. We won't, won't <laughs> say what it is just yet. Well, we can say it's an Atari logo. They'll give a hint there. So how it's well, going today, Hal? Good. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. And coming into from the city of brotherly love, Mr. Brian P. Miles. How's it going tonight? Uh, greetings and salutations. I can't wait to hang out with my neighbor, Gene. That's right. <laughs> Local. Right. So coming in as, as Brian's neighbor, please welcome to the show, Gene Brignola. He is a designer, creator, fabricator, author, classic car builder, has his own design studio, and he's responsible for something called typical pylons, which we're going to get to in just a moment here. So... Without further ado, Gene, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for joining us. So let's let our listeners know what typical pylons are. Uh, it is a historical artifact in a way. It is something we've replicated. It goes back to Epcot to the early 80s and the original uh, park opening. And uh, it's something that they're bringing back. So Gene, I'm going to let you tell the listeners what is a typical pylon. A typical pylon, it was at the time the largest single pour of acrylic, clear acrylic or known as plexiglass, uh, that had ever been manufactured to fit in front of Spaceship Earth at Epcot as part of their fountain. And there you go, folks. So for those <clears throat> interested, we've got Gene, the designer and fabricator behind uh, the wonderful fountain in front of Spaceship Earth, and we're going to talk to him all about that tonight. So, Gene, maybe before we get into you know the details at Epcot, maybe a little background of how you got into that, how you got to work with uh, <laughs> with Disney, and how, how'd you get there? Because I'm sure there's a story that goes with it. <laughs> oh, there's a crazy story to go with this. Um, at the time, I was working to help move the Philadelphia Art Museum prior to the bicentennial. Uh, and as the contract was ending, the gentleman who was a good friend of mine and my boss at the time said, we're going to end this contract. And he says, Disney is building this city in Florida. And because of your engineering background, maybe you should go down there and pitch them on selling merchandise or designing merchandise in space age materials. He knew that I, I, I was uh, an Embry-Riddle uh, graduate engineer, aerospace engineer that had um, 
a specialty in synthetic material applications. So I listened to what he had to say. And as our contract ended, I, I jumped on a flight and flew down to Disney and knocked on a door of merchandising. And um, they said to me, um, yes, we're looking for merchandising. We really don't want, know what we want. But the gentleman that I met uh, was very, very interesting. He was a uh, retired Marine, and I had a ponytail down to the middle of my back. <laughs> so surprising that we hit it off because he also had a rock band. Uh, he told me that he had a $43 million contract, and if I was to come back with some samples or something of what I could do, he would entertain the possibility on bringing me into the fold as they were starting to really build out the property. Uh, I came back to Philadelphia, um, didn't have the kind of money that it would take to build a studio at the time. I went around to the production laboratories at Roman Haas that made the material, started to talk to them because I knew that Epcot was going to be futuristic. I'm an old Disney fan. Um, and I was trying to figure it out. I didn't know ex exactly what I wanted to do or how I wanted to go about it, but I went back to uh, my friend's loft, which was right near the Philadelphia Art Museum, uh, and we were trying to decide on w which direction I should go in. And a gentleman came from Roman Haas and dropped off 200 pounds of scrap acrylic, just gave it to me. So we started messing with it and started cutting it up, and he had a, a really, fairly good shop. And I built a miniature city. I would say that it was probably three and a half to four feet long, foot and a half high, and maybe two feet wide, and it mm -hmm. was fully electrified. I was using miniature LEDs before everybody even knew what LEDs were. Um, tiny, tiny microchips. And I built this little city that was actually active. I put it in a box, and the funny story about this was I bought a seat for it on the airplane. And it, <laughs> myself, and my good friend flew to Florida. Well, as we were rolling it through the Orlando airport, there happened to be a TV crew there, and they wanted to know what we were doing. And we said, oh, we're, we're, we're entertaining a possibility to work for Disney. They asked us to come down and show us what we could do, and uh, we brought this miniature city. So they did a 11 o'clock special about these two characters from Philadelphia with this big box that was going to meet <laughs> Disney. Well, when we went to the meeting, they already, the Disney people already saw the, the television show and couldn't wait to open the box. They opened the box, they saw what we did, and they said, okay, here's what we'll do. Everything that they saw, they liked. They said, you come back with six to eight pieces that we can sell at these price points in six weeks, and I'll write you a con The guy said he'd write me a contract. Wow. Home we went. Uh, another friend of mine who realized what we were doing, uh, his father was a real estate broker, uh, had a, a fistful of money, and said, if you bring my son in as a partner, I'll give you all the money you need and a facility. And $48,000 later and a ton of brand new equipment, we made eight prototypes and I flew by myself back down to Disney. Unfolded them on the table in front of about 15 people. Next thing I know, I was signing a contract. So wow. that's how it all began. And, that and these items were all made out of acrylic. They were yeah, paper, they, and paperweights uh, and things. No, they were. I we were calling them designer gifts. So they were 
I'll have to get some pictures for you guys, but they were, uh, let me see if I give you an example. Picture a block of acrylic that's six inches long by two inches square. And inside of it was a spaceport with flying saucers and things and a landing strip. And the, the, the term that I was calling when you looked at the bottom of it was the material by removing material created an image inside. So it was by removing material that created a 3D image. We were calling it something from nothing. And Disney just loved the deal. And not only did we start with eight, we started to make 20 or 30 more. Uh, even before Epcot was open, they were selling them in, in Disneyland. Um, they were asking for different ideas. We were coming up with different pieces. Um, in fact, uh, as we went along, um, they started to talk to me about designing some big, large pieces. In fact, the pylons were only one of them. Another piece I did was called Music for Your Eyes that's set up in the Centurium, which was the building that was directly behind Spaceship Earth. That was their first uh, introduction to the new merchandise that was going to be sold in, uh, in the park. The, um, the spaceships and things that I did prior to Epcot, they pushed right through Tomorrowland, and they were selling them up front, getting ready for Epcot to open. So we, we, we made some significant things. In fact, when uh, the Disney Village, um, after the first week, they oh, there was a place in there called the Captain's Table or something like that in the center of Disney Village. They had me bring a tractor trailer down with all of my laser equipment, and I set up right inside oh, Captain's Tower. I set yeah. up right in oh, front yeah, of the yeah. Captain's Tower yeah. so that people could actually watch us make the pieces on site, on property. Wow. wow. How, how, how do you that remember these things for sale, what, what Gene's describing, or do you remember any of this in the Captain's Tower? So I did see some photos, and yes, I do remember those items out for for sale everywhere because it was there now i didn't know it was done with lasers that's awesome i, did, I was going to ask if you used routers and, and how you managed to duplicate it some of them some of them were done with uh high speed fifty thousand rpm diamond setting tools some of them were done with lasers and through this whole introduction to disney and stuff i got to become very good friends with the arebus brothers okay and uh tomas arebus was my mentor he, he and i hit it off we did everything together it was kind of cool you know in fact when when he passed away i was i was i i was had my family at disney and i always went um into the village area and uh into one of his stores and i walked in and i said is tomas here and this woman turned white and said he passed away in spain and that freaked me right out that yeah. was a bad day that was such a shame i mean he had i'm sure he lived a long rich life but wow what a legacy that guy had oh yeah he, he also owned a glider we went up in a glider he had Oh, that was cool. pretty cool. Oh yeah, I made wow. him a glass. I made him a glass gl glider, a glider as a birthday present one year. <laughs> That's great. That's cool. So were any? So none of those products were branded as Disney or Epcot then at that point. No, they, they were all, I signed, all generic. I signed, every, I signed every one of them backwards and upside down. So when you look through the piece, <laughs> you could actually see my name and the date. So that comes so in hand, says, handy, uh, writing checks says, in the mirror, I guess. <laughs> uh, Leonardo da Vinci. There we go. Yeah. I mean, these really were, in a way, art pieces, like yeah. individu yes. individually made. It's like they weren't mass produced. So nope. I think it's great that you signed them because that's wholly appropriate, in my opinion. Thousands. <laughs> Thousands. Well, what I, was I the, how, how, how long did they take to make? Like, what was like the average... Well, 
well, each one's all, all different. So what I did was I had, I had, when I had this facility set up, the people that I recruited to work with me, since I was, I had experience of being in the music industry out West after I left, um, engineering, um, and I, I realized that I could get all of these part-time musicians that were really creative to work for me because they also had weird hours. You know, they worked till two in the morning playing music and I'd have them come in at noon or something and they'd work till eight. So I had these scattered shifts of all of these friends, these, these young musicians, and they made all of the blanks. So after the blanks were made, it went through three or four steps before it came to my area where I set it up to, to carve them. And we, we would do, um, we do a thousand a thousand in a run we've just set up get all the blanks lined up and they would just keep making them and i'd keep running them through these machines hand signing them doing the finish work on them um it, it, it got to become a really unique process plus it was a pretty crazy crew i mean we <laughs> yeah. we, we did we did all kinds of things we didn't just work for disney um uh, we made t-shirts for like springsteen and miami steve and grateful dead and all kinds of crazy things so it, it, it was a very unique design studio. It wouldn't be the kind that would be like so regimented. Uh, we were unique in what we did, and I think that's what kept the ideas fresh. And that's what Disney liked. They saw different things that they couldn't find anywhere else. Now, what did the Disney sell those for? Does anybody recall how, Gene? The, cas uh, the castles I did, I did a vertical castle that looked like Cinderella's castle called Castle on a Mountain. And they were selling for under $30. I think the price point was like $25. Uh, I also did another piece for the for the Haunted Mansion, which was a set of ghostly hands inside of a block playing a keyboard. So it looked like they floated oh, inside sweet. this block. Mm. And they were, I think they were $15. And they were two inches by an inch by an inch. Okay. Wow. So <laughs> did we run the inflation calculator on that one, Brian, while you were in there? No. <laughs> <laughs> what what year what year was it? Uh, well, the first when I first went to them was 1978. So okay. by 79, they were running pieces through Tomorrowland and Disneyland. Um, by the time we opened Epcot, we were doing some bigger pieces. We also did these large acrylic sailboats with floating sails and things. That if you go on eBay every once in a while, you'll see all the copycats that copied us. Mm. It, was, it, it used to make me laugh because my lawyer goes, you can't sue them because they don't make enough money. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, well, a, th a $30 castle in 1978 would be $120 now. Okay. Wow. Actually, actually, I was actually thinking about selling them back to these guys for like 30 bucks a piece because I can make them that quick. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, but I, like I said, I'm more interested in the fountain because yeah. So how'd you get to there? Where, where? It better and faster and higher quality than anybody else. I've seen work done other places, and plus I have all the specs. <laughs> it would be neat to see that revitalized again. I know that that haunted. Now I got to look for that haunted mansion piece because that would be <laughs> a rare. That would be cool to, to see. Yeah. yeah. Let, hold on a second. Let me see if I have one. <laughs> she got it. Just. <laughs> You're a good man, Gene. You kept everything you oh, made. Oh, look at that. That's it. Oh, my gosh. I swear it's I remember that. a pair that. of hands. Look at that. Yeah, it's, the yeah, it's, on the keyboard. So you can't see the it, it's a pair of skeletal it's hands. There's these two little holes in the back. Wow. So in the back of the hands, it's... it's. There you go. That's awesome. Amazing. 
Well, I've got tons of pieces. I got pieces everywhere. In fact, when when I told Todd that I had the logos for the fountains, these are the logo strips. <laughs> oh, wow. They're, they're a special material that when you put them on acrylic, you can't get it off. And that was what Disney wanted. They wanted to make sure that their logos were secure. That they wouldn't. Oh, wow. So that's like super glue of logo for logos. Uh, it, they're super thin. They're made of a, a, a what do you call a high-tech mylar. Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, God, I don't even know the thickness. I remember we measured the thickness because they wanted them. So when you ran your hand over top of the pylons, you wouldn't even feel them. So super thin, super durable. Oh, yeah. Can't yeah. get them off. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I was running around Disney one day sticking them on everything. <laughs> <laughs> I had boxes. Of them. That's awesome. <laughs> the question I, I want to ask next is, so how did this transition from making these little trinkets into the fountain that we know and love today? They had a plan. They had a plan for the fountain. They built the fountain. They had a designer. What was his name? Um, Mac Macarary. Anyway, they they were looking for design elements. They had a design. I altered the design, changed it a little. They went back and forth. They wanted them. You know what the first of all? Do you know what the pylons are? Does anybody know what the pylons really are? No. Oh, so they represent uh, something. Uh huh. I will give you the trick. I learned this having been there. If Walt put his finger on it, they would buy it no matter what it was. So, if you look at the pylons in the negative, don't look at them as solids. Look at them in the negative. They come from Frontierland. They are standing rifles. Oh. Muskets. High-tech muskets. Huh. That's not expected. Wow. Wow. Why muskets? Because Walt? Because Walt loved Frontierland. It was his, he loved it. So it looks like standing, standing, rifles, yeah, over fire. Yeah. Just like, yeah, just, that's it. Just like uh, Frontierland. How about that? Yeah, I never would have thought. Nobody knew it. Nobody I thought it was the, the, the promise of the future curve, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now we're exactly. backwards. When I did the, the music for your eyes piece for the Centurium, which were glass panels that had uh, sequences, uh, bars of color, translucent colors, that when you walk by it, they went up and down like music notes. Oh, wow. So, and, and I got that idea from going through the Disney Museum, and Walt had done a drawing of this paneling sequence that when you walk by it, it moved. And I went, oh, this is great. This is great. But to do it in a cylindrical base and these panels were interwoven among themselves. So when they had it really high up. So when you walked around the counters, it was like a centerpiece. When you walked around the counters and you looked up, it was lit. The, the, these colored panels looked like they went up and down like notes in a music score. Oh, cool. But it was, wow. but it was really you moving. The piece didn't move. Hmm. It was pretty cool. That's amazing. So standing so, rifles, gentlemen. So standing <laughs> rifles is where we got the 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 uh, what's the concept. word I'm looking for? The concept, yeah. So how did it go from concept to reality or design? I know you're sitting well, there with it, the blueprints in front of us, so we we were like, it, you know, <laughs> our mouths well, are gaping. Acrylic was the deal right then. They wanted it futuristic. They didn't want to do it in anything else. Um, 
the gentlemen, the people that I knew in California were these enormous fish tank manufacturers. They did Mandalay Bay. They did the one in Beijing, which was like 80 feet long, single panel acrylic, six inches thick. They had autoclaves to do it, but they never did anything other than flat or curved sheets. So this was a challenge for them, a real challenge for them. Um, the, the only problem that Disney had was they weren't hip to the fact that the heat from those enormous lights under that, under each one of them, the heat wasn't evacuated. So as mm. you know, from being in Florida at three yep. o'clock in the afternoon, it rains, temperature changes, humidity goes up and down. Meth methacrylate, which is the material, it's a two part, never totally cures. It's always because the other thing too was because they had to mix it in batches and lay it on top of each other. Some of the batches, because of the weights and the amounts they would pour, were maybe a little off. And when that heat got to them, they, they call it kicking. The material started to kick again. And on opening day, when I walked by that first pylon and saw the, the first crack, I called head of operations. My wife thought I was nuts. I called head of operations and said, um, I think we have a problem here. And mm -hmm. he, he's like, he wanted to know what it was. I said, if that crack runs, Acrylic has the tendency, because of the changes in weather, to split. And if that thing splits, you're going to take out 50 guests sitting on the edge of that fountain when that thing comes down. That night, they pulled that sucker out and put a new one in. Oh, my God. They were fast. You saw that opening oh, yeah. day you were there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, did, I didn't really. Yeah, I walked by. You know, I'd been there a couple of days earlier. Uh, but when I walked by, I, just, I didn't, must have been the light or something. I just caught it. And I caught it on the very bottom of it. I didn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't climbing or anything at the time I saw it. It was maybe quarter inch or so, but I saw it. And I, and I was trying to figure out what it was. The challenge that I had with them was they brought some young gal engineer out there with a, an infrared heat gun trying to measure it. And I was on the phone with Corning Glass, one of my mentors who actually... Uh, worked for Roman Haas's PPL labs. And I said, this is what I see. What do you think? What do you think? And they said, it's kicking. Um, and then I called the, manu the guy who manufactured it. And he said, he's told me, he says, we poured it in layers. So, you know, this is unheard of before. But when I told him it had like thousand watt light bulbs under it, he was in a panic. Um, <laughs> oh, even, though they, even though they disputed what I said, I said, it's because it's kicking. They gave me some, I, have, I actually have the report. So this 21, 22-year-old gal told me that I didn't know what I was talking about. And I called Corning Glass, and Corning sent down six-inch pieces of radiant glass to put between the lights and the pylons to keep them from cracking to absorb the heat. Um, wow. But yeah, but Disney was really like, they were, they were a little, to me, I thought they were a little obnoxious to have this, I mean, I had an engineering degree, five years in aerospace engineering, and, and these guys are telling me that this young girl knew what she was talking about, having never worked in the material before. I was a little taken back by it, but I let them do their little thing and their little report, but they still put the glass in between the lights and the pylons because they couldn't evacuate the air. They didn't have any fans or anything in there. Uh, and because we weren't privy to how the fountain was going to be built other than the plans, uh, it, did, it just shows lights, light panels. It don't say 1,000-watt lights. Right. Um, it shows where the water inlets are and things like that But and how deep these pylons were going to go in order to be stable. Um, but the, the heat problem was something nobody anticipated. 
uh, with the changes in weather. I mean, it was, you know, the material gets hot, it gets cold, um, and then they blast it with this heat from below. Uh, it, it was it was taken on some strange characteristics that nobody was familiar with. So you're you said you're saying opening day that happened, and then they oh, yeah. came that night and they pulled it out. Day. Which one was it? Like, do you have recall which uh, of the three? Yeah, hold on. Just let me think for a second. Where's my? I'm looking for my other pylon. Oh, here it is. Let me see. Uh, the way this thing was set up. It was the, when you walked up. It was the first one on the left. From like when main you entrance, up, you're saying? Yeah, when you walked up from the monorail around to the left side of Heichel's um, Plaza, it was the first one on the left. So I didn't know the plaza was, had a name. Wait, 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 what did you just call that <laughs> plaza? <laughs> trying to remember his name. I can go pull it out of my records. But um, in fact, if you guys hang, I might have the letter here. Do you, do you mean John Hench? Hench. That's yeah. him. So they called that Hench's Plaza? Yeah, yeah. Wow. In fact, that was my big argument when I wrote to Iger. I said, get those dumb tombstones out of there. It's <laughs> screwing up the beauty of that plaza when you got off the monorail. You saw those stupid tombstones, uh, yep. the labyrinth, which also interfered with the ability for people to get into the park. It, it created that confusion of uh, the, the opening entrance. The whole thing was supposed to open up to the entrance of Spaceship Earth as, a, as an awakening. And then they go and block it with those tombstones. The so legacy. were you were you there the evening they pulled it out, like to supervise, or no? Oh no, I didn't. I, they come. They the thing that's strange about Disney now is, any time that I was there and they had to do something, they wait till everybody was out of the park and they brought cranes in like rocket ships. Now the place looks like a construction site. I mean, they're doing it day and night now, which they've never mm -hmm. they never did that before. Everything was done. As if, you know, it was perfect all the time. How deep, you're, you're saying, uh, we've heard stories. How deep did they go? The, the pylons? Pile, yeah. Let me look. I love we get the rustle of paper and everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, one foot eight inches times, what did I say? It was, that's the plan size. So it's one foot to an inch. Yeah. So 12 inches times that. And... A couple of, a little over a foot or so, for sure. Because you need something for that anchor to, to hold on yeah, to. They, so and they used, a, they used a glue around it. This, That's what was going to be my next question, is how did they anchor that together? Yeah, they used because... a sealer around it because um, the way the fountain was created, it was created with these staggered porcelain tiles. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what did they call it? Let's see, flush floor. I mean, I even have the, the terrazzo divider strips in here. Okay, so... The light recess, seven inches elevation. Here's the, here's the way it was set in. I'll show you the picture. If you can see it. That's where they went into that hole. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So that that little did they kind of go oh. into that? Oh. No, they just slid straight down. Straight down. So that was enough straight with down. the weight and the and, oh, yeah. and that design that they would kind of just sit in there and then seal it in kind of around the, the edge weight, the weight was i think 2700 pounds each one wow. yeah either 1400 or 2700 i i'm trying to remember which it was without trying to dig it out here um now were you there for the so, install at all or no i was there for one of the installs the minute i saw one went in i was good 
How did they hold? I was like, my first thought is like, however they attach that thing, they're going to scratch it. Like it just seems no, like oh no, they had this thing. They had this thing wrapped with shipping blankets and ropes and all kinds of garbage. They dropped it in with a crane, and there was like a dozen people up there trying to get it straight because it had a tendency of wanting to rotate. Because as you guys have seen the shape of the thing, it's not not perfect. It's not like a tongue depressor. It's got these right. angles in the back, and it's angled at the top, so it has a tendency to want to slide out. Mm. Uh, so they had this thing wrapped up pretty doggone well. In fact, in, in the warehouses, they had the pylons on these rollers, like a roller table. So they had, when they first got them, they, when they were shipped in, they were put up on these roller tables so that they could unwrap them and clean them and stuff like that. But the material is super slippery. So, mm. uh, yeah, they were, they were challenged when they... Uh, when they first started to decide uh, who and how they were going to drop them in. Well, I okay. know it was challenging. Sure. I'll talk about the logos on top. We were discussing that earlier. So there was, you got, I mean, we all know the, the Epcot logo was at the top. How was that? Was that etched in or what, the, what was that? They, what do you call it? They etched that in. I'm looking for the, which, which one? I'm at the area development, looking for the actual, pylon section to where it says what they were doing with it. I had it open before because I was looking. There's the logo. Oh, there you and go. if you see, it says quarter inch black acrylic where the words are. So that's that was their their goal at first. And that, like I said, the reflections kind of like put them into a bind because yeah, if the upper logo was supposed to be violet. And it was violet. supposed to be Violet. Oh, to match the yeah to match violet, the Epcot purple okay yeah violet plexiglass two two eight seven adhesively applied to cast acrylic face that's the way they were going to try to do it so uh, so then you're saying that messed with the light refraction all yeah, that they, just looked they, bad they, yeah plus when they realized that they were going to put colored lights under it it it, oh, yeah. it it lost its effect you know so they realized hey let's put it in white and then the colors behind the acrylic as it as it lights up from the bottom and changes, will give it a more dramatic and clean effect. Mm -hmm. Black would have been, or violet would have been horrendous. I mean, I can't <laughs> imagine violet logos. <laughs> and that's interesting that they ended up leaving the name off of it and just doing the, uh, yeah. the pictorial part without the words on there. Well, you know, they have this crazy thing about these committees. When they do this committee, they all sit around and, and talk about it. And, and then somebody makes a final decision or somebody chimes in and says, did you really think, think about that? You know, and, and like with a couple of the things, even with the, um, uh, when they realized that it was cracked, um, at first I didn't think they were going to do anything. And then all of a sudden, I guess whoever went back and started to have the discussion with the operations people, the thought was, because I told them, I said, listen, I've seen experiences where I've had small pieces of acrylic and, it gets a little bit of water in that crack and it, it expands. And then all of a sudden it just snaps. I mean, it makes this big noise. Like it pops in, in the studio. I had a couple, a couple of pieces, even um, in some other areas that we were just sitting, having lunch one day um, and a piece had fallen into water earlier and we had it sitting up on a shelf and all of a sudden it just went, it just snapped, <laughs> scared the living heck out of us. But I thought about a 1400 pound one coming down along that fountain um, because I still believe that that's the best photo op ever. Um, yeah. 
And that, that's why I want to do another fountain for them. But in the front of it, I want to put a place where they can slide a photo in, the photo that they took of themselves in front of the fountain. So I think you said that um, you, you gave us a little bit about the price. How many... So they, they poured some backup pylons just in case something they, like that happened? Yeah, they, they poured, I think, two extra at first. I think they poured two extra at first, and then the one went, cracked, uh, and they removed it. And I think they called my friend up, and they ordered another one, and that's when all of a sudden they started going, up about the price. Right. <laughs> because he realized that it cost him more than he... You know, you, you do things for Disney and you want to give them something good and you negotiate the price and you give it to them a little low and but you have business with them. Um, all of a sudden they came back to him and um, he, he jacked the price. <laughs> I mean, I know he had I know he had to. Right. I mean, I just just saw the work that it took um, to put this thing, you know, to bed, as we call it. Um, it. It took him a long time. The pours were the pours were unique. You couldn't just pour them flat because you had to pour them at an angle. I mean, it was, and then you had to polish them. So it was, it was a challenge, a challenge for the, for the, what he called manufacturer, uh, something he'd never done before. Right. You know, he, like I said, he, he was just doing fish tanks, big ones. <laughs> I was going to say he did the pours for the seas pavilion too. Oh, nice. Oh, for all those channels. Said, trying to think of how, how much those suckers weighed. I know they weighed a lot, but I mean, it was his forte. It's what he always did. Yeah. Um, and like I said, his autoclaves, you could put a house in. Wow. <laughs> They're enormous. Now, do you know, how, how does the pouring process work? I imagine that you can only mix up a certain amount of this acrylic resin at a time. Do you pour it yeah. in and pour a next amount? Or do they just mix a massive amount and pour it in one and let it cure? Or how do you, how does it all work? And the autoclave, I assume, it vacuum it gets they, the bubbles out and all that. So, right. sorry, That's go, go. <laughs> so it, was, it was a multiple pour. They, I'm trying to remember which way they poured it first. They poured it up to the first angle, and then they stopped because they wanted to see if it was going to cure. So they poured one layer down, which is pretty thick. I probably, God, had to be, I can't even imagine. It had to be four or 500 pounds of two-part meth methacrylate. Uh, then you have to mix it. That was the challenge. The challenge is mixing that amount, even with big, enormous mixers. They mm -hmm. have to mix it. Then when they pour it, they have to pour it and they let it stay, put it on a vibrating table, these big vibrating tables to vibrate the big bubbles out. Mm -hmm. And then they throw it in an autoclave. And what they did was they autoclaved it and then they poured a second layer on or a third layer on and autoclaved it again and again. And that's what I think it was the major cause uh, where the splits took place, where the cracks mm -hmm. began. Uh, because after they pour it, they grind it. So what they did was they had to grind the bases and that's where the crack started. Um, oh, okay. to get them perfectly flat. And I don't think he, I know that he wasn't aware um, that the, that these lights were going to be there. He just thought they were going to go into the frame that mm -hmm. they gave him uh, a cross section of, and he designed the bases to fit into that frame. Um, and when they, when they ground them flat at the bottom and polished them, um, it, it definitely, it definitely caused a problem because right, they were, right. You have to understand when you're polishing and grinding, you're creating heat again. Mm -hmm. So if you're familiar with metal where you anneal it by heating it and softening it, after they ground it, they didn't stick it back in the autoclave. They ground it and polished it, and they were sending it out the door. Gotcha. Maybe if they would have put it back in the autoclave, it would have annealed it and made it hard, and therefore it would have cured a little bit more. Um, but they didn't. I, I know he didn't anticipate them cracking because when I went out there a few years later, 
to have him build an enormous fish tank for uh, one of my clients, um, we were having a discussion about the cracking and stuff, and he, he was, wasn't too happy about it. And he wasn't too happy about the fact that they wanted more of them, and they were giving him a lot of grief about the price. So on the poor, I, I find it amazing that they can do it in, in, in sections and still maintain some level of clarity and not being able to see that line. So when you do the second pour, <laughs> even though it's clear, it, it's cured, is there some chemical reaction that's bonding to the one that's cured already to help fade those lines, or is it through polishing? Okay. How does that work? Okay, I'll explain to you. What they do is the material, when it's mixed together, has a certain angle of refraction, and they have a meter that they can tell what this refraction number is. And the refraction number calculates down to how much resins you're mixing mm -hmm. so they can get the exact same reflection let's call it a number the exact same number by mixing the right amounts of material so that when it adheres there's no line wow. you don't see a line at all it's so it's there on a microscopic level maybe but you don't yeah, even you maybe can't even if see it's it. off a little bit but on a piece that big if he if if he's done his refraction numbers correctly it's almost like holding a gun up to it. Puts yeah. out a number, the clarity number. They mix according to what it's going to take to get that number precise. Then they pour. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. And I'll tell you, it's, it's rough when it comes out. It comes out like white. The whole outside surfaces are like white. They're like frosted. Wow. So they, then they got to go. They, they do a sanding process like I would do on a car. They'll start with like maybe 400 grit and go to 4,000 grit. And then they'll up polish. and polish and yep. yeah yeah and it's wet it's wet sanding big wet sanders big buffing handheld buffing wheels you know they have to and they have to rotate this thing so it's on a rotisserie almost like you do a a, a a full restoration on a car when you take the body off you put this thing in a rotisserie so you can rotate it as you're polishing it rotate different sections so you can have one guy doing one side another guy doing another side or one guy doing a top one guy doing an edge takes a long time. Wow. You think they right. took pictures of that process? That would be so interesting to see one of the pylons on the rotisserie getting... I don't think my guy took those kinds of pictures. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I assume they would have had to have sculpted a positive of the pylon first and then made a form from that to, to do the pour yeah, into? Yeah, yeah okay. almost like, well, in fact, I just did a big... What the heck was it? I just did a big thing the other day. Uh, what they do is they'll... they'll create a either clay uh, i don't know what they used at the time because they never saw what their blank was okay but they'll use clay and then they'll pour silicon and let me step away for a second and i'll show you something here it is walt's frozen head <laughs> this, this here can you see it yeah this is this is a silicon mold that we're going to pour bronze in okay and then what you do is after you make the silicon you put a plaster back to it okay so you pour a wax in here, you take the wax out of here, you take the wax and you coat it with con like a concrete. It's almost like you'd make jewelry, except it's in large scale. And then you melt the wax out, now you have the mold. So they'll pour acrylic into that mold, multiple layers, um, until it's the way they want it. And then they crack the concrete away from it, and now you've got a blank. Okay. So the wow. blank then goes in. So what they do when they pour, when they do it in the concrete, because it's acrylic, they have to put that whole thing into the autoclave. 
It's not mm-hmm. an open autoclave. They have, they pour it into that big mold where they've removed the, the wax uh, and then fill the void with acrylic and then stick it in an autoclave to get everything out. And it had to be done nose down. So the big thick parts at the top. So the bubbles will come to the top and that's the part they grind off. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Oh my gosh. And I guess this whole thing being, I, I, well, Gene, you can tell us the, the width of the, uh, of the entire base. I mean, it's amazing. They can get that, that perfect, you know, much perfection in it, but it had to be what 15 feet away from the guest and seven, eight feet up. Right. Oh yeah. I, yeah. At least that easily. At least, yeah. I'm trying to think of looking at the top of the fountain plan, manhole cover in the middle, water pipe inlets. What is that? <laughs> the blueprint's too big to open. <laughs> <It's> like, oh. <laughs> Elevation. 102 inches. Well, just the just the pit that the that the pylon fit in, the base of the pit that it fell in was 99.57 was the elevation, and it went up to 103 uh, elevation to the top of the pit. To where, you know, if you remember the fountain, it had it angled down a little, it angled down like this a little bit. So you're looking at probably a drop of about two to three feet. Okay. That that angle that that tilted um, ceramic tile top had it looked like almost like a mushroom top because mm-hmm. then it rolled over and then that's where the water came out. Huge. Wow. That's like eight and a half feet tall. Is the hundred and three? I just did a little quick math because yeah, because yeah, I stink at math, so I, <laughs> I had to figure it out for myself. <laughs> I can't do it in my head. Yeah, they, 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 I mean the the fountain itself. Like I said, when they built, they put that fountain that's in that one that they now removed that the one that was in there i couldn't imagine why they just didn't leave the old one in and do whatever they wanted to do to it they could have just taken off the tile but instead they built that other thing and removed that whole uh tiled fountain and now they're going to go put it back in again which is i I don't understand the logic but i guess they're going retro pretty much now (laughs) we we were we were told that the that the pylons themselves had kind of faded and discolored over time and they mm. really they they didn't want to pay to replace them. So oh yeah, I know they didn't want to replace that's, them. That's that's <laughs> why that's why they took them out and like just left the base there. The sun well, see, yeah, that was I, the. I didn't see them yellow. If anything, the challenge may have been that they were because they're VU protected. I mean, when you're making when you're doing acrylic, you you have this you have you pour in this VU protector, so. If, if there was any yellowing, it was surface yellowing. And I know it would have been a real pain for them to have to polish them in place uh, because they would have probably had to go through that sanding technique to get that surface layer off. Okay, the, the, that little guy here, 1987, does it look yellow to you? No, it does not. Not at all. Right. Not at all. Not at all. Yeah, so I, I, in fact, this here, this one, was made in 80 and it's not yellow look at that it's perfect i have a problem problem with that excuse i think the excuse is fifty four thousand dollars for a pylon when the first one costs 14 is a little prohibitive and now they're probably paying 108 thousand each (laughs) well in fact what do you call i'm waiting i'm gonna wait a little bit before i call my friend out west and say ask him are you making the pylon because i'm He'll yeah, we'd me. love to know that. I was going to say, you're probably the guy who could find the guy who's making it. And well, I know who, I'm, I'm 90% sure I know who's making it. He could probably give them the most inexpensive price. And having been 
through it before he'll know the shortcuts to get it right. Um, now, what's the process on that? Like, say, say Disney decides, like, you know, uh, January to, and we want to go with you. How long does this whole thing take him to deliver a finished product to Disney? <sighs> like well, nowadays. Well, it depends if he has jobs in place, because like okay. I said, he does these humongous fish tanks. We're just right? I'm more like spitballing right? here because I'm curious. Every time I see an Three aerial shot, months. I... Okay. Three months, maybe. We see these holes in the fountain now, and I'm just waiting for the next picture from, you know, uh, Bio Reconstruct to be a pylon sitting in there or something. <laughs> are, are the pictures, are they triangular? The holes? Yes. Ah. <laughs> see, I'm and that's the thing, that. though. I couldn't tell, and you guys probably know this as much as uh, Gene does. Aren't those? I thought those were the old holes. They just took the cap off. You I know what I'm saying? I thought they removed that whole fountain and put a new fountain in there. No, no, they. The base was is original. The base remained original. So the triangle the holes base. we're seeing in the current yes. aerial photos, those are original holes. It could that, be. that that would be correct. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Because it seems a, to me that they just kind of put a plate over it and tiled over it and called right. it a day. And so what they're yeah. doing now is there's some uh, ornate stone tile work being done. We've seen glimpses of it, uh, and they, they've been actually covering it with uh, with a some old carpet. Uh, unused carpet from one of the resorts, believe it or not, so people can't see what the design is. You think they would have put a much higher wall over that area? Because you know, uh, the I mean, how high? I guess can with you the monorail, go? you can't. Yeah, you can't. So. I mean, you don't want to ruin the view of Spaceship Earth. So yeah, uh, as so you if they're the, the park, same so. holes, they can only do so uh, much then with the shape and everything they, on the bottom. They should just they should just put flowers in there temporarily. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, a, a carpet. What other? I, I know you did a lot of other. Epcot items too. Um, what other things did you do there, Gene? Did anything else make it into the shops after the park opened? Oh yeah, I did a lot of these uh, these spaceship things that I did. Um, actually, what do you call? It? One of my friends. Uh, I have a friend um, who is a Disney artist who travels to all the comic cons, and um, he told me that uh, I should go back and start to do designs of the new areas by putting. Um, some of the new Star Wars type designs in the spaceport concept idea and just reproduce some of the things, uh, the Millennial Falcon and stuff like that sitting on the ground next to that little area that they have that they built in there um, and just reproduce some of the things that exist there so that when people as merchandising can take them home, it's like being there again. They can actually look at them mm -hmm. instead of doing designs that I created uh, to go more at doing the things that they did and making uh, pieces that represent uh, things that you would see as a guest and you want to bring home. You visited the Centaurium a lot. I'm wondering if uh, some of Gene's stuff showed up in the Centaurium and also in the uh, Walt Disney World uh, product catalogs or gift catalogs because I just, you know, that was a big time for acrylic type stuff. So do you know if anything was sold there, uh, Gene? And how do you remember seeing anything? I, I never looked at their catalog. I know that they, what do you call it, they were constantly ordering, ordering, ordering. Tomorrowland was selling out of the spaceship pieces and the castles on the mountain and the little keyboards. And, and there were other things. Um, trying to think of some of the other things that we did. Uh, we did these triangle, vertical triangle pieces that on one side had a tree that had no leaves on it. And on the other side had trees with like cherry blossoms on it. And when you looked at it through the center, it looked like acres and acres of trees going back. It creates double reflections. Oh, cool. Wow. There's a whole bunch of stuff. 
I've, I've got a product sheet somewhere uh, that had maybe 20 or 30 pieces that they were constantly reordering, you know, and we were designing new ones uh, along the way just to keep everything fresh. That, uh, you know, my, I'm that so regret now not having memories of these things. Cause I would have loved to remember the art of the future piece. And then I, there are some of the acrylic pieces that I do remember in the stores, but there was so much stuff. And that Centaurium was such a classy store. Oh, yeah. When they when they opened it up, I mean, it was, it was all acrylic sign anyway, right? <laughs> I mean, it was they had really interesting. And, and I, this is one of the things that we always talk about is like just how interesting and different the merchandise within the parks were and special. And then oh, yes. about about that time that you're talking about that 86, 87, it like all of that specialness kind of disappeared. And it went to more, you know, generic Disney park merchandise. And I have a feeling it probably had to do with somebody retiring from that department or something and another generation taking over. So Gene, before we wrap up, are there, uh, what other projects do you have going on that people may want to know about? Are there there places they can buy some of your art or current works? Actually, if anybody wants something, they can contact me directly. I don't sell in stores. I actually run commissions Mm -hmm. right from my studio. Uh, I just did a big thing for Philadelphia for the, uh, uh, for the Avenue of the arts that went to the governor, Ed Rendell, and the gentleman who created, um, who set up the Kimball Center. Um, It lights up, it's miniature buildings. Uh, It's really, really cool. Uh, I do, uh, yearly, I do uh, probably every broadcaster, major broadcaster in the United States has gotten one of my 1930 glass microphones that stands about two feet high. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you name it in broadcasting, they've gotten it. Wow. Uh, so do, do people come to me for special commissions. I do custom sailboats. I do America Cup racing boats. Um, it's surprising what people, I, I've done big tables. I did a, uh, an enormous glass table, 10 and a half feet in diameter, held up by three marlins, three crystal marlins Whoa. with pure sapphires for eyes. That wow, was a, wow. a monster job. I mean, they had to put eye beams under the floor where this thing sat in a living in a dining room, <laughs> but it's it's beautiful. It's lit up by white lasers at night. Things oh, magnificent wow. looking. Wow, uh, wow. So these are the kinds of things. Uh, I go on eBay all the time, and when they, I see my stuff, I contact the seller and I tell them a little history of the piece. Yep. <laughs> so uh, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, I do all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know, it. it I, I'm, I'm somebody that doesn't waste a second when i pat when i die it's going to say he's totally used up 100 <laughs> percent spent right yes yeah, spent done uh but i'm not there yet so um that's why i said i, I want to see your guys fountain um yeah. and maybe we should talk because i've got a couple of ideas here if you've got a, a you know uh, an interesting group of people on your podcast we might be able to come up with some really crazy stuff I think that would be definitely a plan. We can continue talking. I think we can uh, make sure that some of our reserve fountains uh, that we've kept uh, can make it into your hands. Because if there's anybody who deserves to have one, it's definitely Eugene. I, I mean, the joy that that fountain has bought everybody over the years and what a, a symbol of the park it's become um, is is amazing. And I, I, I think it goes without saying that so many people were inspired by it and remember it, uh, stood in front of it for family photos and everything. Classic. So, uh, yeah, you, you really did a number on it and, uh, it's, it's, 
you know, I think everybody's amazed to hear this story. So we really appreciate the the efforts and work on it. I I, I will hand deliver one of those to you, Gene, when the when the weather gets nice and the quarantine lifts. There we go. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, we even did make it light up, but I'll tell you, they're not a thousand watt bulbs, but we did use miniature <laughs> LEDs. How's well, that? it was it was funny when you were talking about that, and I was thinking, boy, today that would all be LEDs, LEDs. and yes. And it wouldn't have any heat being thrown off of it. It's just, no, exactly. No. In fact, that's what I was thinking in it doing a doing a replica, doing <clears> a replica of a new one, but doing it more to the action because the ability to do it now is a lot easier than it was then. I sure. mean, I can use CNC machines. I can use all kinds of stuff. Uh, I've got friends in China, um, but I think that the pores, the pores for the vertical pylons, I think I could do them in mass production right here. That would be. The quality would be so much better than if, if they were sent out. But sure, I sure. also think, like I said, with a, a picture plaque in the front of it where people can slide a picture up and remember being right there at the spot, I think would be classic. You know, it, w- it would take the people that remember it from then and the new people that get to see the new one now. And it would bring back those memories. It'd be something that we wanted to do it back then, but they were hemming and hawing and going back and forth. And it was all about money for them at the time. Uh, now I think things may be different. So did they Maybe. ever, did they ever make one as a piece of merchandise? Like we've seen a couple at auctions that I assume were like little tests or something, but was it ever sold as a, as an art piece? No, I did 50 of them further. Okay. And, and what do you call it? They kept bouncing around with it. They, what do you call it? The, the, there was all kinds of things, you know, they were saying, well, can you light them up? And I, and I told them what the price would be then lighting them up. Uh, compared to what it would probably be now. Um, and it went around and around and around and around. They wanted them smaller. They wanted them bigger. They couldn't decide. I mean, I've, I've, run, in, I've run into a lot of these things when you, when you bring something artistic to a corporate setting uh, and you've got one or two people that don't have an awareness. Uh, I think the best thing to do is to, if you're going to do it, do a public survey and get a, a real good sense of what a customer you know, would think of it right. rather than the corporate people trying to make that decision. So Gene, thank you very much for your time. Boy, the, the stories that you've got, you have uncovered some things, you helped us uncover things that we never knew. Uh, there is so much more to this fountain than just a uh, hunk of plastic, so to speak. And uh, mm-hmm. like I said earlier, the a number of people that uh, uh, really enjoyed that fountain and, and can't wait for its replica, hopefully to be back. Uh, so you've really made a difference in, in a lot of people's memories and, and trips to Epcot. So we thank you for that. And we really thank you for joining us uh, uh, tonight on this episode. Hey, you're welcome. It's been fun. Nice meeting you guys. I'd like to meet yeah, you. Nice first. to meet you too. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, with that, uh, we will be back with episode 57. And we're going to announce it now what it is. We're going to take you a, tr- a trip. South of the border. South of the border. (laughs) Down Mexico way. That's right. A trip through the river of time, El Rio de Tiempo. So we'll be taking you back on episode 57, which we're going to try to get out relatively soon to keep everybody who's homebound got something new to listen and look forward to. Uh, With that, we'll see you on episode 57 very shortly. And thanks for listening. And with that, Brian, take us out. Follow the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society on Twitter and Instagram at LBV History and on the web at lbvhistory.org. Follow Todd McCartney and RetroWDW on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at RetroWDW. 
For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com. On Twitter, follow our web designer, Jason Bartell of Deepwater Studios, at JasonDWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner. And follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, on Twitter and Instagram, at GoAwayGreen, and on the web at KingdomOfMemories.com. For JT Couser on Twitter, at LS1JT, on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring, and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Brian P. Miles. Retro Disney World is the monthly podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society, a nonprofit, nonpartisan, tax-exempt 501c3 organization, and is not affiliated in any way with the Walt Disney Corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities. 